Hello and welcome to the Learn Chinese Insights podcast, brought to you by ChineseLearnOnline.com. I'm your host Adam. In each episode, I interview someone who has learned Chinese as a second language to find out how they learned it and what they're doing with it these days. In this episode, I'm happy to have Caleb Shetland. Uh, Caleb, before we begin, can you give us a short introduction in Chinese, and then we'll go from there. 呃，是的，没问题。那呃，如果是自我介绍的部分，嗯、呃，我第第一次来台湾是二零一四年。那但是我那时候已经其实中文已经学到某一个程度了。呃，因为我是可以说是一九九八年开始学中文，然后经过就是大大学那四年的学习之后。哦、oh, ，再再加上去北京三个月的那个游游学呃节目之后，我是二零一四年过来台湾上班的，然后我就是从二零零四年呃那那一年以后才开始使用中文在上班环境，所以对，可以可以说是我我是从那时候开始变比较流利一点，因为像以前以前就是课课堂上的中文，对不对？那就是上班讲中文就会自然变成比较，呃，比较会会使用使用外语，使用中文在在不同情况上。那从二零一四年到到现在，如今已经十二年在台湾，就几乎几乎天天都都在上班环境里面讲中文，就就已经变成嗯、呃，虽然虽然英文是我的母语。但是可以说是中文，中文我我这个第二个语言已经已经感觉蛮蛮呃蛮舒服的，也也不会觉得呃中文表达任何事情不不会觉得有有任何困难。嗯 ，very good. All right. So, uh, you mentioned that uh before you, so obviously you're living in Taiwan now. Uh, before you came to Taiwan, you had already started studying Chinese. That's right. Yeah. So about、uh, four years of formal study in college.、Um, so this this is where in the U.S.、Uh, that's right. Yeah. All right. Although、uh, our our instructors were, well, let's see.、Uh, among the instructors I had in in the my four year study period, I had、uh, two two professors from Taiwan and one one professor、uh, from the northern portion of of China. So I got I got、uh, a broad exposure to different.、Uh, Different regional dialect as well as both、um, traditional and simplified characters, so that was that was handy.、Mm, those are kind of the extremes as far as the accents go.、Huh? For sure, yeah. So,、uh, what got you interested? Like at that point, what made you decide to learn Chinese? That's an interesting question. So we're we're reaching back sixteen years ago, or actually eighteen、uh, years、uh, to nineteen ninety eight. So it's difficult. Uh, any answer I give will, will certainly be modified a bit、uh, by the malleability of memory. But、um, I, I recall I was entering an engineering program and I, I needed a humanities credit. But at the time I was obsessed with utility. I didn't I didn't fully sign on to the to the liberal arts ideal of、uh, of learning. So I, I wanted to study a foreign language because that was a way to get a humanities credit with、uh, with immediate applicability, and so I, I just took a survey, and it, it it just so happened that the Mandarin program、uh, 
at uh, at Swarthmore College, where where I went to school, was uh, was very well spoken of by the upperclassmen. So I decided to give it a shot. And uh, within a few weeks of study, I was I was addicted. It was um, it was challenging, but but also engaging. We had uh, we had we began with two weeks of pronunciation boot camp to get. Uh, Get get our tones and, and pronunciation fairly solid, and then we jumped right in with um, roughly ten characters, ten characters uh, twice a week. So it was about about twenty characters a week. So when you say twenty characters, this is learning how to read and write them. That's right. Yeah. So uh, just uh, taking a vocab list, preparing for a quiz, and then and then. Uh, Reading through some material that use use the introductory characters. I, to be honest, I uh, I was I enjoyed the the rate and the speed that we were learning, but I later found out um, that there there are some better ways to learn characters. I wish we had focused more on on learning the the radicals, and or rather more about the radicals. Uh, than than we did. I wish, for example, that we had uh, gone through and learned all 200 odd radicals, including their their origins and names, simply because that that would have made it easier to remember character composition. I think. But that's hindsight. I mean, at this point, was it simplified or traditional? So we began with traditional characters, uh, which I think made it much much easier to learn, uh, simply because we could. We could deconstruct new characters and, and see uh, see what the components were and remember them more easily. Right, and the radicals you mentioned make more sense with traditional. Exactly. Yeah, you can see you can see relationships among among more characters. Um, Fung, for example, you you get to see the uh, the component in the middle instead of uh, just a big X. So at this point, uh, you mentioned that when you started taking this Mandarin course, it was just to get your humanities credit. At, so as you got into it and you decided, okay, I'm really going to focus on this, did you think that this is something that you would use in the future the way you're using it now? To be honest, I did not. Well, in 1998, I did not really have much foresight. It, it became clear uh, as soon as I started to take on internships as part of the engineering program that uh, that Mandarin would would certainly come in handy because I I had an electronics engineering focus and even in the late 20th century uh, the electronics inter- in this industry was already uh, starting to form strong ties to the to the Mandarin speaking world so that was uh, I think I would say by by the following year it was already pretty obvious that it would be useful so but to be yeah. honest I I was always more motivated by by, by the challenge and by the interest uh, of, of studying Chinese, I found this is, this might sound flippant, but I found that studying Chinese had a good ROI, a good, good return on investment in terms of how much it impressed my friends compared to how much effort. So I don't think studying Mandarin is more than 1.5x as hard as studying a European language for a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. In fact, it might be less. It could be 1.3x, but people seem to think it's a dozen times as hard. So right. You, the the perception is it's the hardest language to learn. Right. So you you can see where if you, if you're trying to 
if you're a young person and you're trying to get the most mileage for your study hour in terms of impressing your buddies, mm-hmm. hey, Mandarin's a good deal. Sure. Now, outside of the, the classroom, did you have any place where you could practice what you had learned? Not right away. Now, in the in the college setting, we, we did set up a, you know, language exchange events. And I used to chat with um, with whatever students I could track down in corner who, who came from, from Chinese-speaking areas. But, uh, I mean, you know what the dynamic is. Anytime you are in a, uh, a language environment where someone who who's trying to learn a foreign language is, is trying to corner the rare native speakers of that foreign language and, and rope them into, uh, into conversations just for practice. It's, 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 it's not a great situation. You're never going to have a 100% willingness on the part of the native speaker to, to donate their time mm-hmm. uh, to, to a beginner. So I didn't really have a chance to apply Mandarin in a, in, in a real practical setting until I went abroad in my junior year to study in Beijing. Mm-hmm. So when you went to Beijing, did, were you happy with uh, with how pre- prepared you were Chinese-wise? Yes and no. I, I don't think I was very well prepared, but I, I was more prepared than I thought I'd be. I, I, I was terrified when I landed in Beijing. I didn't think I'd be able to communicate with anyone. Uh, and uh, and things actually turned out to go go fairly well. Uh, I uh, I had not traveled internationally much at that point. I'm I'm trying to uh, get the chronology straight in my head here. Now I think at that point I'd never left uh, the continent, so I think it was Canada, possibly Mexico, was all at that point. So the 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 point is, if you, I mean, anyone who's traveled a fair bit and navigated in foreign language environments knows how to speak international English, you know, mm-hmm. enunciate the keywords, uh, use your gestures, make a big smile, and don't, uh, don't be too proud uh, <laughs> to, to use hand gestures, right? And I didn't really have, have uh, those skills yet. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think that was more of a barrier than my clumsy Chinese. And how long were you in Beijing at that time? It was a brief stay. It was, let's see, September through uh, early December, three months, I'd say. Hmm. And apart from the language issues, was there any other type of cultural shock that you experienced? It's hard. Let's see. Looking back, it's hard to say, again, how much... How much of what I remember is uh, is accurate memory versus um, uh, versus a narrative I've constructed? Because again, we're we're talking about something that happened in late late 2000, mm-hmm. so 16 years ago. But uh, I remember being a bit taken aback by how much the government uh, tried to keep us isolated as foreign students. Oh. So I had suspe- I had expected. Having visited other universities in North America as a, as a student for various various activities and events, I had thought it would be similar. I thought we'd be sharing uh, dorm rooms or at least a dormitory with 
uh, local students in Beijing, and we'd be taking classes together with them and eating together with them. But the uh, the setup was uh, was in, was intended to keep us as isolated as possible. There was a there was a separate dormitory for for foreign students on various foreign language programs. There was a separate cafeteria, and so. Uh, a few of us actually had to stage. We felt like we were staging a prison break. Although, to be mm-hmm. honest, I don't think anyone really cared. But we we would uh, surreptitiously sneak out and, and go into the uh, the local students' cafeteria and hilariously, in retrospect, try to try to strike up conversations with uh, with some of the students there who who uh, who probably thought we were um, mm-hmm. endearing, charming, and foolish. Right. All right. So, uh, so how did you go from there to ending up in Taiwan? Well, that was uh, that was not one hundred percent deliberate. I um, it was my intention to find uh, find a job after I graduated with an engineering degree. I wanted to find a job in the somewhere in the Mandarin speaking world, and I didn't. I wasn't very particular about China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Malaysia, Singapore—it was all—it was all one to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I mean, you can use Mandarin in a work environment in a wide range of countries on the Pacific Rim and Southeast Asia. But uh, Taiwan was really the—it it, it took me. Well, let's do the math here. I graduated in 2012, came to Taiwan in uh, sorry 2002 to 2004. So it took me two years of networking and, and asking around to, to even be able to get a job offer in anywhere in, uh, in one of my target, uh, target language environments. It wasn't, um, it, it's not something really expected. Uh, I don't, I, I think a lot of Southeast Asian and East Asian countries are not set up to expect immigration from Western countries, uh, Except in very specific industries, like like teaching teaching English, for example. I would I would call up software companies and companies that might need firmware engineers, which was my my specialty, and uh, and say, hey, can I send you my resume? I'm an American engineer. I'm looking for a job. I'm looking to work in uh, in in your company. And your company is Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, and and they wouldn't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't a matter of. Okay, here's the here's the HR contact or here's the hiring manager you should you should send your resume to. They they didn't even know. They I, I was getting getting verbal double takes on the phone. Like you're you're an American engineer and you want to what? That doesn't Right. So those type of positions they were just using locals to fill them. Exactly. Yeah. And the the expectation was that Westerners working in those countries in in my industry, in, in high tech uh, would be expats. Generally, generally expats tend to be very high-ranking. You know, they're, they're vice presidents or directors, and uh, or very very senior engineers, and they're present on a on a temporary contract, so two three years, and then then they go home. Mm. So the what I was trying to do, which is immigrate, <laughs> immigrate to a Mandarin speaking uh, country, was wasn't something that people were really expecting. Hmm. So then, how did you overcome that? It was uh, well. It was a long and bumpy road. So I, I, uh, I struck up some friendships just by chance with um, 
with some some colleagues in my industry, other other firmware engineers, uh, and uh, a couple folks were from Taiwan. And uh, one gentleman by the name of uh, Kevin Chow, who was kind enough to uh, to teach me my first Chengyu, <laughs> my first mm. uh, proverbs in Chinese. Uh, he he was visiting Taiwan in any way to visit relatives, and he said, "Listen, Caleb, why don't you come along for a week?" Uh, and I, you know, you can sit down face to face with some folks in Taiwan, and that that might actually get you a chance to uh, to do some networking that that could actually get you a job in Taiwan. So that and that actually did did pay off and work. So my first job in Taiwan was with um, a ProView, a, a Taiwanese company that um, makes uh, LCD monitors. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, it was a bit of a I was still working in high tech, but a bit of a profession change since I, I'm a firmware engineer. But uh, it was like jumping into the deep end of a pool culturally because I had uh, I had never worked in an East Asian company before. So obviously the management style was very different. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. <laughs> now, I, let's see. So I, I came over uh, end of June, tail end of June, blistering hot summer. And I settled right into this office environment working in a cube farm, which I think is something that not not too many foreigners working in uh, Taiwan or, or China uh, probably have their first experience doing. But you you know the uh, Zhongyuan Pudu, the um, the festival where everyone uh, everyone every, every company sets up a big table full of snacks and burns incense in front of their door to. Um, to show respect for the local uh, local spirits, mm-hmm. that that holiday that year fell. I think about three four weeks might have been five weeks after I'd come over to Taiwan. So I had not been. I was still getting settled in and uh, figuring out how to dodge just the scooters and the alleyways and whatnot. When I came back from a lunch break one day, sat down to work and realized that the office was dead silent. I stood up and all of the desks were empty. And I, you know, I wasn't sure. What, is this an evacuation? Is there is it typhoon, earthquake, Godzilla attack? What is going on here? Keep in mind, mm-hmm. this is still completely a foreign country for me. The um, the vice president, the most most senior member of our location of the company, comes tearing across. He comes uh, hurrying across the office at a, at a high high pace. He's hurrying for the elevators. Over his shoulder, he catches a glimpse of me, and he says, uh, Sima Kang, my Chinese name, he calls out to me, he says, Sima Kang, bye-bye, right? Mm-hmm. Which, um, I mean, now I know I know exactly what that means, particularly given the context of the holiday. At the time, it was a very cryptic utterance, and he vanished into the elevator, and I was left there standing. Did he mean bye-bye, like goodbye in English? Like, mm-hmm. like we all, we all need to get the hell out of here, or what? What exactly does he mean? Right. So uh, after working for another 20 minutes or so, I decided, you know, seize the bull by the horns. This is, this is an adventure. I'll, I'll find out what's going on. So I took the elevator down and emerging from the lobby, I was created to uh, the site of an entire massive office building full of employees. So there were probably a dozen companies op- occupying different floors of this building. Huge lobby. And they're all lining up in these sober silent queues of people to to take their position in front of this long um, folding table covered with snacks 
with the incense station. And I can't really see from the elevators what sort of ceremony they're engaging in, but the whole atmosphere is very grim and heavy. And to be honest, it looked like uh, it looked like people lining up after a disaster to receive emergency supplies, <laughs> except right. that it was a clear, sunny day, and, and, and clearly, you know, nothing mm-hmm. nothing bad is happening. And I'll never <laughs> I'll never forget how one of my colleagues spotted me and dragged me into line. And then, uh, and then ushered me through the whole procedure, you know, with, um, with gestures. And, uh, you know, here, hold this incense, make this gesture. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Stick the incense. Okay. Now we're leaving. And we, they all, they all hustled me off and we went for coffee. And I asked them, what was the point of <laughs> that ceremony? And they said, Oh, it was a bye bye house. We're, you know, we're, we're, um, making a genuflection to, uh, to our good buddies. Mm-hmm. Which is yet another cryptic utterance for a form, right? right? Uh, and as you, as you no doubt know, during Dongyan Pudu, during Ghost Month, you can't say the word ghost oh. in any, in any language, preferably. Mm. I've just realized I think we're still at the tail end of Ghost Month. Right now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh. I don't think it counts for us. <laughs> right. So, so the rule, it's, it's like Fight Club, right? The rules of the <laughs> holiday prevent them from explaining to me what the holiday is about. I was terribly confused. Yeah, he who must not be named. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's like Harry Potter style. <laughs> so there were no other expats working there. Uh, let's see. We had, well, we had visitors from time to time from other other offices, other locations. Mm. Uh, but I don't think we had. Oh, we we got a Russian fellow into our technical writing department for about six months. Hmm. until he moved on and uh so he and i used to hang out but the the most tiresome bit of being the only foreigner in a very large multinational high-tech corporation is that everyone calls on you to do foreigner stuff and they have a very very wide definition of what foreigner (laughs) stuff means so what kind of things are those well if the if the British gentleman, if a if a contingent of British gentlemen shows up from the London office and they want to know where the pubs are, that means you got to take <laughs> a pub crawl. Okay. Uh, it, <laughs> I don't hold my liquor well. That was not. That was a, that was a, that was heavy duty. I I made gave more than one PowerPoint presentation at uh, at nine a.m. still drunk from the pre from previous mm. night. So, but, so the position you were hired for. What, did you have any special like foreigner skills for that, or is it something a local could have done? Well, the the position I was hired for specifically at ProView was uh, was an unusual case because uh, ProView had engaged in a, um, uh, a partnership to produce LCD displays for a prominent uh, North American brand, and they. The, the relationship was was struggling, and the uh, the GM who hired me on uh, had had the idea that um, that I could act as a, as a liaison and help help uh, help ProView's un- engineers understand why their technical specs were were being uh, being rejected. And I think so. I think um, it was a good idea. I probably joined a little bit late. <laughs> <laughs> the game to make much of a difference, but mm. uh, the most most jobs, like for example, the firmware position I'm in right now, 
could certainly be done by a local. Although any any uh, any intercultural and interlanguage skills that you have working in, in, in high tech in Taiwan are definitely helpful. Since hmm. the engineering culture differ, differs a lot between uh, between east and west. Hmm. So for for expats who are here who have kind of technical abilities, you'd say there's demand for those type of skills, like an expat with those abilities. Oh, absolutely. Good grief. Well, it it depends. Um, particularly in engineering, the job demand varies widely depending on your your specialization. Engineering is an infinitely ramified field. So, for example, for firmware engineers, and I work in data storage, so we do uh, the high-speed data storage arrays that make sure your your pictures pop up nice and fast when you post them on, on social media. So uh, in, in, in our industry, firmware engineers are, we have a desperate shortage of firmware engineers, and that's that's even been true in economic downturns. I mean, even even when uh, when companies are laying off in our industry, they still jump at, at experienced firmware engineers. So yeah, it really doesn't matter where you come from or what language you speak. But if you look at a more competitive engineering field, so for example, off the top of my head, web development is a field where the labor supply is not so woefully outmatched by the demand, so there's a better match there. So there, it's a more more normal job market. And I think in that field, wow, definitely. If you if you can speak both Mandarin and English, and again, it doesn't really matter where you're from, but if you can communicate and make yourself clear in Mandarin and English, that completely alters what jobs you have access to. But web development is kind of a funny industry here because... The, the sites they develop, the local sites, the style they like is very different than Western styles, right? Yeah, well, as a as a user, I have to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Western websites, it's all about the simple UI, right? How simple exactly. you make your UI. And websites... Yeah, the complete opposite. <laughs> yeah, China and Taiwan, it's how many blinking small text hyperlinks can you squeeze onto your homepage? Hmm. All right. Um, and f- so let's say you have, you know, expats here with with technical skills and things. Are these the demand you say that's there? Are these jobs that are advertised, or does it take some effort to find them? Like you had to go through. So for uh, for things like firmware engineering, embedded systems, thing fields in engineering that are are very specialized. It generally seems to be mostly by introduction. So if you're, if, if someone's a student, an engineering student, I have to strongly emphasize the importance of getting either co-ops or internships, whatever you can get. And I know that sounds, um, it, it might sound a bit stuck up since a lot of internships these days are unpaid. So economic circumstances, uh, forbid a lot of people from even taking them. But basically if, uh, if engineers have worked with you before and they recommend you for that position, that is such a boon to hiring managers because they know, okay, this is a, this is a person who, who has some, some background in our field. Right. Hmm. All right. So that makes sense. So long term for you, are you happy out here? You plan to stick it out? That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a question the, the, 
the locals ask me a lot is, hey, are you still going to be here a year from now? And that's a fair question to ask mm-hmm. to foreigners in Taiwan. But yeah, my, my plans involve a long-term career in Taiwan. I, I can't be more specific than that, though. Mm-hmm. All right. And you're happy with your quality of life and everything here? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, any city you live in has things you can complain about. Taipei has brutal, brutal summers. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, yeah, Taiwan's a great place to live. Mm. All right. Well, good. I appreciate you sharing your, your time with us. And, uh, yeah, I'll be happy to forward any feedback people have. Be great. Okay. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks.